Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's discussion is another one about high-sensitivity troponin. We're going to specifically focus on implementation. If your hospital is going to have a protocol or is going to newly get the high-sensitivity assay, how do you bring it into your institution in a way that is useful, avoids hiccups that are known, and what sort of things do you need to have on board before you can use something like this? So we have three experts with us today. Dr. Simon Mahler, you've heard from before. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine at Wake Forest Baptist Health, and he oversees clinical research in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Deborah Dirks is a professor and chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UT Southwestern. And Dr. Christopher Bowe is vice chair of clinical affairs in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. If you haven't listened to the rest of our series, I do recommend going back and listening to the one in the ASAP Equal channel just before this. Because in there, we talk about all the ins and outs of what the high sensitivity assay is and what it measures and what the cutoffs are and some issues with units and just a general overview. So we're not going to go into all of that again today. So first up, Dr. Dirks, what was your experience with implementing high sensitivity troponin and what are the barriers that you see into bringing something like that into a new institution? Yes. Yeah, so we actually implemented uh, high sensitivity troponin at two different hospitals over the last two years. The first one being Parkland Memorial Hospital. And, you know, I think our overall arching goal for doing that was to really improve our operational efficiency, provide the most diagnostic accuracy to our patients as we can. And so what we did at UT Southwestern is we went through the literature and use, using the, the Roche Gen 5 assay, realized that over 52 was really a clear diagnosis of a myocardial infarction based on that assay. We then used prior studies to define what our other parameters are. So the Roche-Gym 5, less than six nanograms per liter, is actually the lowest limit of detection that can be reported. And between six and 52 is really that indeterminate zone. So we actually decided to go at, with a zero, one, and three uh, protocol, really based on combining the ESC data and then also other published studies. And just to clarify here, Dr. Dirks means zero, one, and three hour time points for the zero, one, and three. So our first rule out is somebody had been present, had pain over three hours. If they had no detectable high sensitive troponin uh, and three hours of symptom duration, we consider that person ruled out for a myocardial infarction. If their symptoms were less than three hours, we required a one-hour level also. If a patient had a value of less than 12 nanograms per ml, that was our threshold to say, look, at that is where we defined our gray zone starting. With a value of over six, but less than 12, if they had a delta of over three nanograms per liter, we then put them in the indeterminate range again, and they had to have a third hour. We used a seven nanogram per liter as our abnormal raise from our zero to three hours. So really we had three buckets. Those that ruled out initially, those that were over, got over 52, which was considered abnormal, and those that had a detectable one, if we repeated it and it was still less than 12, we actually were able to say, you know what, probably not, especially if their delta was less than three, we ruled out. If the delta was over three with a detectable in that range, we indeterminated it and we kept it going to a total of three hours. Now, this raised complexity and that raised a concern on, well, we're giving people different buckets, but we actually don't, we need to actually be a little more concrete in what we do. 
when we actually started our process, we actually ran over 500 samples with our contemporary assay and our new assay. And we did that because one of the, one we had to for laboratory verification. And two, we really wanted to see what would, that would result. Our cardiologists, just like cardiologists everywhere, were really concerned that we were gonna get a ton of positives. And what were we gonna do with that positive? And what you see is that really when we got down to it, 20% of all patients using our con conventional troponin, Gen 4, had a positive troponin. When we added in this new high sensitive algorithm, we were able to rule out, in other words, they had less than six nanograms per liter in 30% of the patients. We had to go to one hour, so they kept that value less than, um, kept that value less than 12 in an additional 25%, and went to three hours in 29% of the patients. So we really were able to exclude the diagnosis of myocardial infarction in, um, in 55% of the patients by one hour. When it came to actually hit our positive criteria, looking at either a value over 52 nanograms per liter or reaching our, our delta definition, only 16% of patients actually had an abnormal troponin based on our algorithm to be considered actually ruling in or meeting our threshold for myocardial infarction. And that actually was less than our with our conventional troponin assay. But we also looked at what are we going to do with this, right? We're not used to, as emergency physicians, dealing with an indeterminate range. I'm really good at dealing with negative. I'm really good at dealing with positive. But what does that mean, to, and how do we implement that in terms of a kind of disposition algorithm? If their initial troponin was below the limit of detection, but their modified heart scar was over three, they could either have an outpatient coronary CT or go an inpatient stress as an option. If we had to go to one hour, in other words, they had some detectable troponin and meet our threshold for needing serial levels, patients were eligible to have an outpatient CT or stress. And then if we went to three hours and their modified heart was still three or less, they could either be tested as an outpatient or a CT. The descriptions of these pathways is really hard to do in an audio-only medium. And so I do recommend that you either go back and listen to that section or take a look at the UT Southwestern protocols for this because it makes a little bit more sense when you can visualize the, the flow chart of what labs and what risks mean different dispositions. But we didn't only implement this at Parkland. Our Clements University Hospital has a vastly different demographics and frankly are a lot higher risk. I also have a lot more ability to play with the electronic healthcare record. So our approach when we moved to Clements Hospital is to learn a little bit from our, our experience at Parkland. And that was really, can we use this algorithm and instead of manually trying to figure it out, can we implement it into EPIC? By implementing this into EPIC, we actually were able to gain some efficiency. In our manual approach at Parkland, if someone is, we have a order that orders all troponins at once. If a person has below the limit of detection, we have to manually go back in and then cancel those orders. And the reality is that requires someone to sit down at a computer and do, uh, and actually manually enter that in, look at the patient, get the results. And we all know that we're really busy and that's really sometimes difficult. By entering this into the EPIC care path, we are actually able to use EPIC to order additional tests only if they met the threshold to it. So we actually reduce some of our kind of waste, in other words, of actually getting more troponins than we needed just because we couldn't sit in the computer. This has been great because it's really standardized the approach across the, inst the institution as a whole. People know what we're going to get. It's coordinated radiology. It's coordinated our outpatient clinics. And I think in general, it's allowed us to really give the best outcomes to our patients.
And we're going to move on now to Dr. Bo and also ask him to describe what his experience was with high-sensitivity troponin and initiating a protocol using it in his hospital. When we were thinking about this implementation across our system as a task force, we thought about four different clinical scenarios where a high-sensitivity troponin could be ordered. And I think uh, for the purpose of this audience and for my background, we really focused on the emergency department setting. But I think for our listeners who are engaged in looking into changing the assay at their institution, it's good to keep in mind that there are other settings that this will be used and to suggest that thought leaders from those settings have a similar degree of preparation when they are thinking about going live in their areas. When considering the use of troponin in the emergency department setting, I think when you talk about myocardial infarction or myocardial injury, the, the two types that are kind of most relevant to us in the emergency department are going to be type 1 and type 2 MI. And it's just probably worth taking a moment for those who aren't familiar with these definitions to explain a little bit. Type 1 is really acute clot rupture causing lack of blood flow and myocardial injury. Whereas type 2 MI be quite frequently as a consequence of another primary process, and that's due to a supply-demand mismatch that results in myocardial injury. And this could be a patient with an NSTEMI in the setting of hypotension and sepsis or right heart strain with massive PE. And those are all clinical settings where a troponin may be useful clinically. In U.S., you, you are likely to see different definitions for a 99% percentile cutoff. And in, in our system, we chose a bit more conservative cutoff for females of uh, 10 nanograms per liter and then 15 for males. And this is what your EMR is going to flag as abnormal. And this may or may not correlate with the protocol that you're going to be using in the emergency department for ruling in or ruling out patients. So it's important to make that distinction because very often in my practice, since the 14 months that we've been using this assay, I'll be ruling out and sending patients home with values of troponin that are flagged as abnormal in my EMR. Um, and that's because there's no significant rise in troponin and the clinical scenario is not consistent with an AMI. And that does take a bit of a change in practice for people who are used to kind of a rule out being an undetectable troponin and a rule in being a detectable troponin, you really have to change the way that you think about troponin's uh, results. Moving ahead a little bit around how to develop your own protocol, because ultimately you're going to need that prior to going live in your own institution. You know, our, my experience was basically starting with pen and paper with my collaborators from Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham. And we were, we were basing uh, much of our early thought work on the Mueller-Trapid AMI paper that came out a few years ago now that was in a U.S.-based cohort. And then we kind of combined that with what we know from the European literature. And then over time, refined our protocol to its final form, which, you know, we, when we launched it, we fully expected to get feedback and then to make kind of rapid cycle changes to it. But it's actually gone throughout the whole 14 months without having any significant changes, which is, feels really good. It means that we likely largely got it right with the, with the initial launch. Now, we're still always looking at it to see if we can make it better. Now, launching into the final version of it, I'm going to kind of talk you through it step by step. And what I think what's really interesting is that if you look at uh, similarities between the protocol I'm about to tell you about and the one you heard earlier in this presentation, from Dr. Derricks, they are very similar and they were developed completely independently. This protocol 
starts with with cycling a, a one hour troponin. We do allow for the initial troponin is less than six and onset of symptoms is greater than three hours ago for, for those patients deemed low risk by heart to be done with their rollout, very similar to what was presented earlier. So after you do your initial one hour delta troponin, uh, layer on a heart score. And so that is a little bit of a different take than what you heard earlier, because we felt like abandoning the heart score as part of this kind of initial risk stratification would be a little bit of a practice change for us that we were uncomfortable with, and then have a range of disposition recommendations, anywhere from admit to cardiology for the ones we feel most confident are having an AMI and really would benefit from a cardiology admission to those who could safely be sent home. And then we have this gray zone, and uh, this is kind of the page two of our protocol. So we have one page, one piece of paper that has two sides of text. We laminated them and put them all over the department so people can really uh, touch the protocol and interact with it when they're working clinically. So the gray zone has that three-hour delta, and we use this cutoff of seven, which is informed by the European data, as you heard previously. And then we then uh, have a range of disposition options that go, again, from admit to cardiology to send home. But now we more clearly identify the patients that we think would benefit most from kind of rapid outpatient clinic follow-up or keeping in our observation unit for further cardiac stress testing. Next up is Dr. Mahler. And our question for Simon was, have you made any adjustments to your existing heart pathway based on the use of high-sensitivity troponin? And if not, what are your plans for the next steps? Currently, what we're doing clinically is uh, if you have a non-ischemic EKG, uh, no known coronary disease, and a HERE score of 0 to 3, you get a serial troponin that's zero in three hours, and if those are negative under the 99th percentile, then those patients are identified for early discharge. And for anybody that hasn't heard that term before, the HERE score is just the heart score without the troponin piece. What we're proposing, this is still a, a draft, so it's just not a final uh, uh, protocol, but we're, we're trying to incorporate the high sensitivity assay into the heart pathway. So there's a lot of similarities. So but what, when, one of the uh, key differences is when you get down to the HERE score of zero to three, we're doing, we're going to be doing a zero and two hour serial sampling and uh, looking at both absolute and delta. And if, uh, if you're, you, there's th- now going to be three different buckets, a, a discharge for the low, a sort of a rule in for the for the elevated either with uh, an absolute over 100 or or a, a large delta and then, then an observation zone and then in the uh, if you have a here score of a four or or greater we're using just that initial troponin to help place you into a bucket of obviously if it's really high uh, those patients I he- hesitate to use the r- word rule in but very high is likely to, to be having ACS so the cardiology consultation and then uh, uh, if they're uh, le- less than that, they're placed in the kind of observation zone with a chance to potentially be seen as or have their care further testing done as an outpatient if they have serial negative testing uh, and a year score of in the four to six range. Now, Simon, you just authored a paper that was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology on how to institute high sensitivity troponin and what the barriers might be. For everybody listening, that's a great reference that you should definitely check out. But Simon, can you give us an overview of what was in that paper? So, you know, the, the key thing is but most hospitals uh, still in the U.S. have not transitioned over to high-sensitivity assays yet. 
But whether we like it or not, eventually we're all going to switch over. And uh, uh, the key is, you know, developing a process for you know, transitioning these assays. And so, you know, where do you start? The key is with getting uh, stakeholders involved. Chris mentioned this in his slide. Um, you know, you need to develop an institutional algorithm. There may be other process changes that need to occur. You're going to want to um, very upfront uh, need to know what your timeline is, and you want to define what uh, what does success look like, but also anticipate what could be some um, some negative consequences for switching over the assay. And then finally, uh, which is uh, you know often the Herculean task is making sure that all of the providers that are going to use this assay from the frontline clinicians, nurses, and so on are educated on how to use the new assay. Now, Chris, before we move on too much, can you tell us how you actually manage the change at your hospital? Any lessons that we can all use as far as change management so we don't have to reinvent the wheel? For Brigham, in our experience of our implementation, you know, I mentioned we went live in April of 2018. Uh, we had about a 12 to 14 month period prior to go live of preparation. So we started in February of 2017. So just a month after FDA approval became publicized with our work groups. And we started initially locally at our local hospitals. And then within a couple of months realized that this needed to be a coordinated effort at the health system level. And then those local teams started to dock in. And I think what was interesting is that we, you know, we kind of widened the circle of, of who we considered a stakeholder over time to the point when we had, you know, many dozens of people involved in in getting the word out around this assay changeover. It really started with this kind of triad of emergency medicine, cardiology, and lab, but then very quickly realized that this was not going to be an effort just involving those three teams. And so I think it was important to have administrative staff also assisting, right? You need a project manager to really handle something of this magnitude. So it wasn't just physician staff doing this in, in a vacuum. Um, and then moving on to kind of putting it all together, our protocol, you know, features this high sensitivity troponin. And I think the context is, bears repeating. I know Dr. Dirks mentioned that you need to have a reasonable pre-test probability to be using this test. And in our own experience in, at, our, at the Brigham, was that after we went live with the new assay, in the six months following adoption, we ordered troponins in about 15% fewer visits than we had previously. And so we were being more selective around who we're getting troponins on. And I think historically with contemporary troponins, some clinicians had used it almost like a lactate, like a sick, not sick tool indiscriminately for patients with vague symptoms. And, And I think you have to really think, you know, what is my concern for AMI or ACS in this patient? And is it reasonably high enough to order troponin to go down that pathway? And, uh, and I think that resulted in fewer patients um, having assay. And then I think this concept of an ADP is very important. I think you need to have some structure around how to interpret the result. And just a reminder that in this case, ADP stands for Advanced Diagnostic Pathway. My last question is, in some of the discussions around institution of high-sensitivity troponin, if the test and pathways turn out to be really good, how does that impact the need for an observation unit or observation admissions? And do you need to or have you considered that in any of the changes that you've made? Sure, I can speak to that. You know, I found that uh, chest pain is probably the most common single condition uh, for which we use 
an observation visit in, in my institution, and I think that's fairly general across other places with observation units, up to about 20% or more of your ED OBS volume is going to be chest pain. And so I'm used to when I'm rounding in the chest pain, sorry, in the OBS unit in the morning, I almost uh, made a slip as a chest pain unit because a lot of EDs just have chest pain units. That's their OBS. I'll, I'll have a few patients kind of waiting for stress. And that was their their kind of uh, reason for being in the OBS unit overnight. What we've experienced in, in, in our institution is about a relative 20% decrease in observation visits for chest pain and a uh, commensurate drop in our in our stress test. And so this has consequences for patients, uh, or sorry, for places that are trying to keep their OBS units full because you're, you, you should expect fewer visits. And since this is just a common condition to be managed in your OBS unit, it, it might be wise to think about some new protocols or other protocols with broader observation criteria to be kind of rolling out similar time frame as the new troponin assay if you want to keep your OBS unit full, which is, which is uh, a typical priority of, say, an, an OBS director. Clinic referrals, uh, we, we, you know, we work very hard with our cardiology group to have a resource available for patients we thought were a bit higher risk. Say, hey, we think we can avoid an admission or even a stress test if we can access cardiology clinic in, in, a, in kind of an expedited way. So if we can get someone in in the next few days, we can get them home. And I think that had a great value to our hospital operations. It kind of saved consults. It saved observation visits to have that resource available. So it's worth having that discussion uh, with the cardiology colleagues, it is a, a bit of a give and take, right? Like they give you access to clinic follow-up that you may not have had previously, but, but at the same time, you're, you're maybe not consulting them, which could also save a resource, especially if they're afraid that resource is going to be saturated. And then talking about some of our outcomes six months later, I think I've spoke to, to most of these. Um, our ED length of stay uh, remained relatively flat for these patients. And I suspect that's a combination of reducing length of stay for, for patients who had a one-hour delta and then, uh, and then pulling some patients that were previously in our observation unit for, say, a six-hour repeat troponin and discharge planning. Uh, we're now just having them stay in the ED as a longer ED visit. And so I think that the combination of those two populations ended up mitigating any kind of uh, change in our ED length of stay. It certainly didn't increase it, but we didn't see the same decrease that that colleagues in Europe had seen that I kind of referenced earlier in, in that in that data. Um, as I mentioned, we are seeing uh, fewer uh, stress tests, uh, and we have looked at outcomes. And, and you know, we didn't uh, perform a study where we're calling all of our patients, making sure we're not losing patients to follow up. So take that with a grain of salt. This is administrative data, but we're not seeing any signal that we're sending home patients who are having bad outcomes as a result of all of these changes to our to our management. And that is going to wrap it up for this edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. Thank you to all of our guests for being here today. And thank you, listeners, for your time. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our ASEP Equal series through the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine blog, www.aliem.com, or through your favorite podcast app.